Well, welcome today. My name is Spencer. I'm so glad that you've joined us. Today is part six of our series on the fruit of the Spirit. We're spending nine weeks exploring a really, really famous passage from the Bible. Galatians 5, 22, 23, it goes like this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the plan for the series is really simple. Every week, we're just taking one of these words and we're diving in deep. And so this is the sixth week. So we're gonna look at the sixth word, and that is goodness. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. To say that differently, the natural outgrowth of a disciple of Jesus, the natural outgrowth of someone who walks in the Holy Spirit and has fellowship with the Holy Spirit is goodness. And the reason for that is because God is good. And so as we walk with Him and and uh, uh, walk in, in, in discipleship with Him, then we will begin to reflect His character. And the Bible tells us over and over again how God is good. I think about how the Bible opens. God creates the heavens and the earth and every element of creation, He calls it good. He creates humans on the sixth day. He calls it very good. We are very good. And the reason why creation is good and humanity is very good is because God made them. It comes from Him and He is good. And so therefore, all that He makes is good. I think about what we read in Psalm 23, the last line of the Psalm very famously says this, that surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. That could also be translated, probably should have been translated as your goodness and love will pursue me, will, will come after me. It's not just follow me kind of in a passive way. It's like, you're gonna follow me and pursue me with your, with your goodness. I think about James chapter one, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift comes is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. And of course, every good gift comes from God because God is good. So it makes sense that when we walk in Christ, have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, when we take up our cross and follow Him and practice the way of Jesus, that we are going to naturally, naturally have this outgrowth in our life that is goodness. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. And at least to me, maybe not to you, but at least to me, that statement raises a whole host of questions as well, that the natural outgrowth of, of a disciple of Jesus is goodness. That raises all sorts of questions for me because out of the nine fruit of the Spirit, to me at least, goodness is the most complex. I mean, on the surface, it, it sounds pretty simple. I mean, it means we do good things. But as you start to dig at this just a little bit for a second, it turns complex because here's a fun question to ask. What is goodness? What does that mean? How do you know what is good? How do you know what is right? How do you know what is good? And this question of what is goodness and how do you know what is good, this is a question that humans have been asking for millennia. This is the basic question of philosophy, both ancient and modern, is what is good? What is virtue? What is morality? What is right? What is wrong? And who gets to decide that? This is the question that is a burning question um, in our culture because this is the question that's behind the culture wars. We have two very different definitions and understanding of what is good two very different moral frameworks, two very different understandings of what is virtuous and what is right and what is wrong. And, and ultimately what it is, it's a war over what is good. How do you understand it? How do you walk in it? It's this ancient question that is as hot today as it's ever been, is just this question of what is good, what is goodness. And so today we're gonna wrestle with that question. And we're gonna do that by going to a conversation that Jesus has about goodness. It's in Matthew chapter 19. And it starts with a really interesting question. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, here's how it goes. 
says, just then a man came up to Jesus, pressing question. He's interrupting Jesus. You can see how this is starting. He's interrupting Jesus. Jesus has been teaching on marriage. And now he's interrupting Jesus with a, with a question on the left field. And he asked Jesus, his teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What good thing must I do to get eternal life? What an interesting question. What good thing must I do to get etern eternal life? Now, there's quite a bit to this question that is lost on modern ears. I mean, first of all, with this phrase eternal life, it, it doesn't mean what we think it means. We hear that phrase eternal life and we think what that means is, uh, what good thing must I do to go to heaven when I die? But that's not really what this guy is asking. If you go read through Matthew and pay attention to how this phrase eternal life is used, what you're gonna find is it has, it's not really about going to heaven when I die, although certainly there's an aspect of it that is about eternal life forever, but it's, it's really about life in the kingdom of God right now. That's how Matthew uses this really throughout his gospel. It's about how do I, how do I live pleasing to God in this life today? What, what does it look like to live into the kingdom of God, to be pleasing to God, to honor God? Um, how, how do I do that? That's what this phrase really means. So he's really asking, you know, what, what good thing, what, what does goodness look like? within the kingdom of God? What, what are the good things that God wants me to do? Now, there's another aspect of this that's also lost on modern ears, and there's some background noise that we don't really hear um, in that this question is not nearly as innocent as it may appear. I mean, it sounds like he's just asking for some advice on how do I live my life, but, but this is a really, uh, not an innocent question. This is a highly political question that this man just asked Jesus. Because you see, in Jesus' day in the first century, there are all these different groups who are vying for power. We know, if you read the New Testament, the Pharisees, it's one of the most prominent of these Jewish groups in the first century. And the Pharisees had a certain understanding of, of how to read the Old Testament law. They had this very strict reading of the Old Testament law along with the Talmud and some other writings that are about the interpretation of this law. And we see Jesus interact with the Pharisees on a regular basis and confront them and challenge them. Um, but there were other groups that were operating in the same, same time frame. Um, another group that was operating in the first century in, in, in ancient Israel was uh, the Essenes. This was a group that believed that what it meant to, to honor God, to be pleasing to God, to live in the kingdom of God was to withdraw from the world. And so this was a group that went to live in the desert separate from the sinful Gentiles and the sinful uh, Jews who were, who were acquiescing to the sinful Gentiles. And so they went to withdraw, live by themselves out in the desert. Many people think John the Baptist may have been in a scene as he was someone who was out in the desert with his preaching. There were other groups. There were the Sadducees who really vied for political power. They, they thought about using political power to live within Roman rule. That was the way to, to live the right kind of life. And there were the Zealots who believed that what it meant to honor God was to have a armed rebellion and a revolution to free the Israelites from the, um, from the Roman rule. So when this man is asking, what good thing must I do? We need to hear the background noise there because this is a provocative question. This is a loaded question. This is like someone, if they're coming to me and they're asking, hey, hey, preacher, which political party are you a part of? And if you asked me that, I would look at you very suspiciously and I would say, why would you wanna know? Because that kind of question, there's a thing behind that question. There's something that's driving that question, right? There's something that's, that, you're trying, that you're trying to get at there. So what good thing must I do is a loaded question. It's, it's like, Jesus, which group do you align yourself with? 
Jesus, whose teaching are you propagating here? Is it the Pharisees or the Essenes or the Zealots or the Sadducees? Like, which group do, is right? Which group has the angle on what the goodness of that I need to have in my life? And this is a, a provocative question. This is a question about the culture wars of his own day. Jesus, where do you stand? What is good? What is moral? What is right? What is wrong? How do I navigate this? And, and which group do I align with? Because they are the ones who are getting it right and the other ones are getting it wrong. It's a provocative question that this man is asking. So what good thing must I do? Very interesting question to start. Jesus' answer, also really interesting. Here's how Jesus answered, verse 17. Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. So let's get to the heart of this question. Let's see what's really behind this. He goes on and says, there is only one. Notice how it's capitalized. We're talking about the Father. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, that is life in the kingdom, keep the commandments. So you're asking, what is good? What is right? What is moral? What is virtuous? Which group, um, which rabbi do I listen to? Which understanding of this? Which, which moral system do I follow? Which you know, ideology has it right? Which political party, which pundit is telling me the truth? And Jesus is like, hold on, hold on a second. As long as you're asking those kinds of questions, that's the wrong question. Because there is only one who is right. And what is good, what is moral, what is virtuous is not going to be settled here in our debates about these different groups and these different ideologies. It's really about our, our understanding that there is goodness that comes from the one who is himself good. The one who is good has revealed himself to us. He's shown us the way to life. He's shown us what he wants. He's shown us what his will is. He's shown us how to live. He's shown us how to navigate life. He's shown us which values to foster. He's shown us which virtues to live into. He's shown us what is right. He's shown us what is wrong. He's shown us how to navigate the complex questions of life. He has revealed his goodness to us. The problem is we don't like to listen. I mean, this is the problem of the very beginning of humanity is we don't want to listen. The very first temptation given to humans in the garden, the man and the woman, the snake says to them with the very first temptation, did God really say? Are you sure God's telling you the truth? Are you sure this is the source of the goodness of the moral life, of the right life, the moral framework and system that you should be paying attention to? Are you sure this God has your best interest in mind? Are you, are you sure that he's telling you what is good? This has been the temptation of humanity ever since the garden. We look for what is good, what is right, what is moral, what is virtuous, apart from the only one who is actually good. And he has revealed himself to us. He's taught us how to live. He's shown us what is good, and yet we haven't listened. I think about our world today. We live in a secular age that has removed God from how we um, think about the world, how we think about our neighbors, how we think about ourselves. And, and that's how secularism works. I mean, it's to look at the world and to determine what is good based on our own understandings, our own humanism. That's kind of another word we use a lot of times with that. How to act, what to pursue, how to treat our neighbors. It's through this lens of humanism. And so we answer these questions about what is good, you know, apart from God. 
And we can see that very clearly when you look at the world and how it operates and how we have these debates about what is good and what is right and what is wrong and, and all those kinds of things. But, but I, don't, I don't just mean that this is a, a worldview for atheists. I mean, there's a lot of Christians who live with this kind of secular worldview that tries to navigate life apart from the revelation of God and his goodness. I mean, here's a, here's a way to illustrate that. So maybe there's a phrase that I'm sure you've said it, I've said it, it's a very popular thing among Christians, maybe we've all said it, but have you ever heard someone uh, refer to their, their life with God as um, their quote unquote, their spiritual life? That's a really popular thing to say. I'm sure we've all said that at some point. Now, what do we mean by that, my spiritual life? Well, we mean that part of our life that is spiritual, our relationship with God, maybe our Bible reading, maybe how we go to church, uh, maybe we tithe or we serve, or maybe we have the hope that we have when we face hard things. You know, that's how we use that phrase to describe our, our spiritual life. But you may not have thought about it like this, but that is a very secular way to view your life and to view the world. Because what does it imply to say that I have a quote-unquote a spiritual life? Well, it implies that I have a part of my life that falls under the category of spiritual. I go to church. I pray, I read the Bible, those kinds of things. But then there also implies that there's a part of my life that doesn't fall under the category of spiritual. I have a work life, a family life, I have hobbies, I have these other parts of my life, I have a financial life, and these different parts of me that are not spiritual. And if they're not spiritual, therefore they are secular, because that means I'm navigating the world now apart from understanding God and His goodness. Now in Christian teaching, there is no such thing as our spiritual life. That is not a phrase that you would ever find in the Bible or a phrase that you'd really find in Christian history or teaching. That's just not, a, a, it's a way of thinking that is foreign to really Christian thinking because in Christian thinking, if Jesus is Lord over your life, if Jesus is Lord of your life, that doesn't mean he's Lord over just your praying and your Bible reading and you going to church and maybe your hope you have when things get difficult. No, 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 no. If Jesus is Lord over your life, he is Lord over every single aspect of your life. He's Lord over your bank account and your vocation and your decision-making and your ambitions and your sexuality and your voting and your time management and your body and your relationships and your vacations and your hobbies, etc., etc., etc. If Jesus is Lord, then there is nothing that Jesus is not Lord over. And so therefore, this question of what is good, what is moral, what is right, it is answered under the, the, the Lordship of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Bible. And it's impacting every aspect of our life, how we navigate the world, how we see ourselves, how we interact with our neighbors. But if you have a secular worldview, whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, or whether you're a Christian with just a very narrow view of God's activity in your life, just your spiritual life, then you're, you're gonna have to do is you're gonna have to come up with a moral system somewhere. It's not gonna be from God, it's gonna be from something else. And so you're gonna have to create a moral framework by looking somewhere other than God and the Lordship of Jesus. This is why there are Christians who come to church every Sunday and, and they never begin to think to apply the Bible to the problems that they have at work or how they raise their children or how they interact with their spouse because what they've done is they've carved out those parts of their life as different, it's secular, it's not spiritual, and so they're not applying the Lordship of Jesus to those parts of their lives. 
So you gotta come up with a moral framework somewhere. So we end up looking at different places. For some of us, it's political ideology. For others of us, maybe it's um, uh, just the experiences that you have. You gotta follow your own heart and live your truth and those kinds of things. Or maybe it's just you look to your friends or cultural acceptance, but somewhere you're gonna have to answer this question, what is good? And this is what Jesus is getting at with this man. You're gonna have to answer this question. And there's only one who is actually good. And so you need to listen to him. You need to obey his commandments and what he has revealed to us. So this man thinks he's really smart, um, but he's not at all getting what Jesus is saying. So he comes back with a really dumb question. Jesus says, obey his commandments. This man comes back with, which ones? He inquired. I mean, which commandments? What a dumb question. (laughs) How about this? I don't know. All of them. Well, he's trying to outsmart Jesus to find a shortcut. Really, really bad idea. Jesus is way smarter than you are. And so Jesus replied, okay, game on, let's do this. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, hopefully those commandments sound familiar uh, because they come from the 10 commandments, although not all of them. There are six commandments that Jesus just listed there. Five of them come from the 10 commandments. Um, Love your neighbor as yourself is not in the 10 commandments, but Jesus uses that in other places to offer like a summation of all of the commandments. Now notice specifically which of the 10 commandments Jesus mentions and then which of the ones he doesn't mention. So Jesus doesn't mention to this man Commandment one, two, three, four, and 10. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, now, which, uh, which ones are those again? I, I, I can't quite remember. It's, it's these. Have no other gods, no idols. Don't misuse the name of the Lord. Uh, honor the Sabbath, which is honoring God. And then finally, don't covet what it is that your neighbor has. Which is a very interesting list to leave out. Jesus is setting him up for something here. And we're gonna see that in just a second. So verse 20, all these I've kept. I'm not murdered or committed adultery or stolen. Check, 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 check. The young man said, what do I still lack? Pay attention to that word lack. Verse 21, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, that word could also be translated as complete as opposed to lacking. Go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And then verse 22, here comes the kicker. When the young man heard this, He went away sad because he had great wealth. (laughs) And this is why you don't mess with Jesus. Jesus is taking this this young man from what he thinks goodness is, certain behaviors. I don't do certain things. I do other things. Goodness is the good things that I do. Do not murder, not commit adultery, yada, yada. But there is a deeper goodness that Jesus is really concerned with, A, a, a deeper goodness that is concerned with our hearts. And that's why Jesus sets this man up with these other commandments that he leaves out because he's, he's opening the door to talk to this man about his own heart. Because for Jesus, what happens in our hearts, in our character, in our thinking, in our um, ambitions, in our desires, in our motives, those are all kinds of ways to think about our hearts. What happens there on the inside this is what really matters. And this is what begins to change. And what he wants to do is to change so that we begin to reflect not our own understanding of goodness, but we begin to reflect God's understanding of goodness in the world. And so this is why Jesus tells this man to go sell everything to come follow him. And this is not like a universal command. There's nowhere else in the Bible that we see Jesus requiring his followers to take a vow of poverty. But what is universal that is true for all of us is that um, Jesus requires that his followers 
are going to be people that have nothing else in their life that they put before him. And that's what's really going on with this, this young man. He, he requires us to take up our cross. He requires us to, to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves, to put ourselves last, to lose our lives for him so that we can live in him. But if we have things in our lives that are coming before him, we can never live that path of discipleship. Either Jesus is gonna be Lord over every part of your life or he's not gonna be Lord over any of it. Because what happens when, when we have these other things come first, what happens is the rest of our life begins to revolve around those things. For this young man, it was wealth. So what happens when wealth comes first? Well, you begin to make decisions based on wealth. You begin to uh, uh, start to live your identity based on what you have. You start to feel secure based on how much you have. You, 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 you would never be willing to sacrifice your wealth for the sake of something greater. And this can happen with wealth, but it can happen with all kinds of other things too. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can be like this young man and put before the Lordship of Jesus. Um, it could be having people like you. It could be your image or, or beauty. It could be uh, your career or vocation or relationship or certain possessions or, or all kinds of things that come before um, Jesus. There are all kinds of things that very quickly and very easily come to live the center of our lives. And these things, they become the basis of our decisions. They become the basis for how we navigate difficult, complex things. They become the basis for what we're pursuing and chasing after. They become the basis for how we treat our neighbors and how we think about ourselves. In other words, they become our Lord and they begin to tell us about what is actually good. Now, the truth is, I think it's really hard, or I'm sorry, really easy to be hard on this young man. I mean, it's, it's easy to, to judge him because on the outside looking in, he clearly has wealth at the center of his life. And this is what is everything is revolving around. But I think we need to take it a little bit easy on him because I, I, I don't think he realizes it. This is why he walks away sad. I don't think he understands how, how deeply this wealth is rooted into his heart. Uh, the truth is we all have blind spots in our life. We all, we all have places that um, it can be really hard to know do I have something that I'm putting at the center of my life that everything else is revolving around other than Lordship of Jesus? And one of the things that happens as we grow in Christ is that we become more and more aware of these parts of our life that are not in submission to Him. We become more and more aware of the parts in our lives where we're trying to navigate life on our own or we're trying to define what's right and wrong based on our own thoughts instead of His. We, we become more and more aware of these parts of our life that are, that are outside of His control and His Lordship. And, and the, the process of sanctification then is to, is to as our, throughout our life, is through repentance and confession to bring these things under the Lordship of Jesus so that He can tell us about how to navigate life, how to navigate complex things, how to treat our neighbor, how to treat ourselves, how to think about our identity so that everything is being lived for Him. I think about how in the Psalms, for instance, there are these um, prayers that you read on a regular basis where you read these prayers that are like this, like, like the psalmist will say like, search me and know me or, or test me or know my thoughts, my anxious thoughts. And I think it's an interesting prayer that you find this over and over in the Bible because there are these blind spots that we all have and Part of beginning to live under the Lordship of Jesus is beginning to bring our, even our willingness to be open, to ask God to reveal us to these things to us so that we can begin to honor Him with every um, part of our life. 
so that Jesus can become the Lord over all of our life. And he can be at the center of our life because after all, he is good. So Paul says, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. And he doesn't just mean that the fruit of the Spirit is that we do good things. What he means here is that there is this much deeper thing that happens when we walk with Christ. There is this um, much deeper thing that happens when we pick up our cross and follow him, as we discipline ourselves uh, to live according to the Bible, as we have fellowship with the Spirit instead of gratifying the desires of the flesh. Like th that, this thing that happens is that we are beginning to live with Jesus as the Lord, that he is at the center of our life that he is the one who's guiding us, that he is the one who is showing us what is good. He is the one who's giving us our moral framework. He is the one who is revealing to us his will and we are beginning to respond to that. So it's much more than just doing good things. It's much more about living and navigating the world and learning to see ourselves and our neighbors and the world um, according to God's version of goodness. And that only happens when Jesus is at the very center of everything about our life. That's the fruit of the Spirit that we call goodness. Let's pray together. And so Father, today, um, first of all, we, we just need to take a time to, to confess for a few moments here that for us, there are so many things that we find ourselves chasing after, distracted by, things that we begin to serve, things that begin to tell us um, what is good and right in the world instead of looking to you. When in reality, you have revealed to us what is right and we need to listen to you. And so Father, would you forgive us for ways that we maybe seclude you into just certain parts of our life and not bring our whole self under your Lordship? And if there are things in our life right now that maybe we're even blinded to, we can't even see them at the moment, we just wanna pray that prayer. Lord, search me and know me. Test me, know my thoughts. See if there's anything evil within me. And if there are these places where, where maybe we are, we are, we're keeping to ourselves and we're not giving to you, Lord Jesus, would you convict us? And through confession and repentance, may we find um, submission to you as we take up our cross, as we follow you, as we seek to live in your kingdom, that we would discover your goodness because you are good. You are the one who is right. You are the one who is moral. You are the one who is virtuous. You are the one who has shown us how to live. Forgive us for the ways that we have not listened. And instead, we have lived our life according to however we want. Lord, thank you that there is endless mercy and grace as we come to you. It's part of your goodness that you are revealing yourself to us. And so I pray today, Father, for anyone who's with us who doesn't know the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, who hasn't lived um, with you as the Lord of our life, we just wanna take a moment with a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me my sin? Would you leave my life? It's in your name we pray today. To the one who is good above all else, we say, amen.